0: Hey, this is Matt Markin, and welcome to another episode of the Adventures in Advising Podcast. Thank you for listening and supporting this podcast. Each episode, we strive to bring together the global academic advising community to share knowledge, best practices, and, of course, advising stories. Make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Advising Podcast. Without further ado, here's the latest episode. And as always, keep advising. (music)
1: Hello and welcome to the third episode of Adventures in Advising of 2021. I'm Colum Cronin.
0: And hey, greetings and salutations. This is Matt Markin. And yes, third episode of the year, the 28th episode overall. Happy February to everyone. And let's not waste any time. Let's dive into our first interview. This is with returning podcast guest, Dr. Quentin Alexander from George Mason University. You might remember that Quentin was on one of our November podcast episodes, but one of the topics we wanted to cover but ran out of time in the interview was advising first generation college students. This is an important topic, including to myself being a first generation college student. So we're extremely excited to have Quentin back to talk about this. So here we go. Well, Adventures in Advising podcast listeners, we have a returning guest with us today, and that is none other than our good friend, Dr. Quinton Alexander, Senior Director of Academic Advising from George Mason University. As you may recall, Quinton was on episode 22 of the podcast titled Listening, Leadership, and Best Practice. So we asked Quinton to please come back and chat with us. So welcome back, Quinton. How have you been, my friend?
2: Thank you. Well, it's been a busy semester since we last spoke in October. Lots have happened, and so I'm happy to be back and to, to talk about this very special population of students, like you said, that's near and dear to you and me. I mean, I was a first-gen student, so this work is, is, is a passion of mine.
1: And Quentin, I suppose um, the four people from maybe outside of North America, when we talk about first-gen students, and, and um, can you to tell us a little bit like how we define that cohort of students. Yes.
2: Yeah, so there, there are multiple definitions of first-gen students depending on which institution of higher education uh, you are. So it can be regional, but the one that's the most common first-generation students are students who are the first to attend college in their family and have not had a parent to graduate from a four-year institution. So that, and, if, and that is specific here, four year institutions in the United States, because we know four year institutions outside the United States may look different. And so some, some institutions may include siblings in, in, in that, but most institutions will say that you know, it is first time attenders um, to a four year institution um, or even a two year institution who have not had parents graduate with a four year college degree. Yeah, and that's
0: good to know because yeah, depending on if it's a financial aid application or someone applying, and there's a question on on the university application, are you know are you a first gen student? Many times, like it's almost like a different definition or slightly different definition depending on where you're applying to.
2: Yeah, what's what's interesting about that? I, I found in talking with colleagues across the nation that how this data, how these data are captured, is inconsistent. Right. So if you Put that on application. A lot of students don't even know what the term first gen means. I, I, I was a first gen student, but I don't think the term was created at that time. <laughs> I was in the early 80s. Um, but it also depends on how it's asked, right? I've, some universities have simply asked, are you the first to attend college in your family? And then I'll ask sub questions to fit the definition. Did either one of your parents attend or I mean, sorry, did either one of your parents graduate with a four year degree? Mm-hmm. So they're very specific. And then some will just ask a general question, such as um, did either one of your parents graduate four year degree? Not that this student is a first time attendee. So they may have had an older sibling who attended. Mm-hmm. So it is complicated. But I think as a general thing, you know, I, I see two tenants. Student is the first to attend a four year institution or two year institution in their family. And a parent has not graduated from a four year institution.
1: And then I suppose, Quentin, can you talk a little bit about where your interest in first gen students comes from? It was it your was it your own experience or something else?
2: You know, it, it is a it's it is a developmental um, culmination of things. So I have to tell a little story that goes with this. <laughs> so when I, in my previous career, I taught middle school, and part of my job after my thirty year of teaching, I was given a job by our central services to look at why minority students were not succeeding in the public school system where I was. And I was in a particular middle school setting. And so I dealt with a lot of students in that setting that when I did things such as went out into their neighborhoods and that sort of stuff, I found that these were students whose parents did not go to college. They were working class for the most part, but I also found these students are very intelligent, but no one really let them know that they were intelligent. Right. And so my push was, you know, to get them to see if they were interested in college and how this happened. So that's how, that was my first introduction to what students who don't have parents that graduate from a four-year institution um, know and don't know. And at the time, I didn't even know that was called first-generation either. You know, fast forward to my doctoral program. I um, worked with a program at Virginia Tech called the Mayock Program, which the Minority Advancement Opportunities Program. It was specifically designed for minority students um, who were interested in STEM fields. And in several conversations with students that I counseled and did programming for, I realized that a lot of these students were first-gen students, and they had specific struggles uh, that most first-gen students had. But I also found they were very resilient. So my interest stemmed from there. And I was doing my doctoral work, I think, had I known more about first-gen before I started the doctoral process, as in the research, I probably would have done my dissertation on that. But in, in the end, I just decided to, do, to dig into the community, uh, do presentations. I did training. I did all sorts of things because when those students told their story, they were telling my story. And suddenly my four-year or four-and-a-half-year experience at the University of North Carolina back in the early 80s made sense to me. I, I couldn't figure out why I was struggling you know, during those first two years, I couldn't figure out um, why I didn't know what other students knew. And this was not specific to race for me because there were black friends of mine who really knew, I was like, why do they have it so together? What's going on there? And it was like years later. I mean, I'm talking like maybe six or seven years ago. We created this Facebook page called, you know, you went to UNC in the 80s when because that was such a nostalgic time at the University of North Carolina. Right. Right the Jordan area, etc. And so as I'm reading through you know, all the posts and stuff, and I'm becoming friends with these people on Facebook and kind of looking through their profiles, I'm like, oh, so oh, your mother was the <laughs> dean of research at this university. And then it made sense to me that they had information and knowledge and support that I didn't have. In the academic sense, my parents were very supportive, but they didn't graduate with four-year degrees. They didn't know what they didn't know, you know, in terms of how to help me get through. They just knew that financially they needed to support me, um, my morale, et cetera. And so that, you know, as I be, as I went into the the professoriate, and, and I only taught graduate school because counseling degrees are graduate degrees. Um, I work with a number of graduate students in a, that I advise as a faculty advisor who were first-gen students, noticing some of the same characteristics. So that thrust me into seeking out what resources that the university have for these students and for other first-gen students. And so that was sort of my introduction to what is this like on a college campus. And I will say at the university where I was. Uh, That's Virginia Commonwealth University. They did a pretty good job with first gen students. I mean, it wasn't perfect, but they had they had programming, they had all kinds of stuff. And then I fast forward to another university, my last university, and they had zero programming. And so I, you know, I dealt with a lot of students because I just am a social person, <laughs> and grad and graduate professors can be very isolated because we teach in the evening. So I um, placed myself on campus. Uh, to start meeting students in the student in the student activity center, and I found that a lot of students had the same narrative. So a colleague of mine and I, Dr. Eric, Erica Brown Meredith, decided to start a program specifically centered on these students. How do we help these students out? Um, and we ran that program until I left uh, this past spring. She still runs it, but you know the inception was in 2017. 2016 is when I started to see the issues. 2017 started the program, um, and it was centered on first-gen students uh, who had m- multiple intersections. They were also low-income. They were also racial ethnic minority students, so lots of things. So long story short, you know, <laughs> or long story long about how I got into this work, it stretches back over my entire career, I think.
0: And you mentioned that program, which is nice, and it can be very beneficial for a lot of the students, especially the first-gen ones. And, like, for me, like, I feel very fortunate for my upbringing where, you know, my parents were like, you're going to go to college when I was like, why? You know, then they didn't really have an answer, although, except that's what you need to do because we didn't go. So you need to go. And, you know, I was fortunate to be part of a middle college program. So I got to go to college early while in high school. And then when I went to the four-year university, I was part of the educational opportunity program. So like I had guidance like throughout and a lot of students don't. And also, like with with some institutions that may not have some of these programs or like mm-hmm. a program that that you developed, we hear a lot of "let's celebrate first gen and first gen students." You know, they're they're great. We need to have a day for them, a week for them, a month for them. We have November set aside for first gen students, and it's like you know, hooray, we have it. Congrats on being first gen, but. As staff or as advisors or as faculty,
2: like, what do we do with that? Yeah, that, that's an interesting thing, because at my last university, which had zero programming for first gen students, we had a, we did start a committee, you know, um, that was the first gen committee. Um, and I will say the, the intent was good, but the efficacy we you know were, bound by a lack of support at an upper administrative level, we weren't funded, et cetera, but we did have a, a, a first-gen celebration. Still in the end, the program that I created was the only program on campus and it was not university funded. It is now, and I mean, after the fact, and thank goodness, yeah. I continue advocating with Dr. Brown Mayor to get the program funded. It's funded on a minimal level. And so that question of, yes, we celebrate them, um, we talk about them, we know their characteristics, but when it comes to advising, do we know how to work with them, right? It's a very specific population. It's a population about whom we should not make assumptions. There are hard facts out there about first-gen students that we all know. We know that, you know, first-gen students, by definition, they're who they are. We know, at least for your university, we know that first-gen students um, have a strong intersection of being either low-income or racial ethnic minority students so those are things that we do know. We do know that those are populations of students, even with those individual identities absent the intersection, will have difficulties navigating the university environment. And so when you put those three intersections together, you have a trifecta that if these students um, you know, don't have the resources that they need, or at least the assistance and exposure, that that could be a recipe for disaster for them. It puts them at risk. And I say it puts them at risk because people often call them the at-risk population or not an at-risk population. They are a population that has risk factors, okay, that may impede their their, their um, pathway toward de- degree completion. And so what, what I see is my purpose, I guess, is really making people aware um, of, of, of first-gen status, what that feels like for students, assumptions that we cannot make or assume in advising and or other student-related service sessions, um, specific strategies to work with first-gen students, specific conversations you can have with them. Um, one thing I'm finding lacking is that there is lots of research out there on first-gen students, but there is nothing specific, at least not that I've seen so far, maybe a couple of articles, on actually advising first generation students. And we know that advisors are the point key persons. On the university campus that moves students towards degree completion and, and and to hit that goal, so if we and we talk about strategies such as proactive advising, and we might mention that this is the strategy that's helpful first year student, but how, right? We may talk about holistic advising. So there, so it's, it's looking into really developing a specific research agenda around how do we serve first-gen students as academic advisors? That becomes, that's become one of my goals is to figure out how do I get all communities to engage in research, whether it's action research, whether it's, um, you know, your typical quantitative qualitative research, sharing your programming, conceptual articles, whatever. We just need a body of knowledge that is specific to advising this population. And based on what we know about the population, what we know has worked, and actual research, actually sitting down and talking to students and saying, okay, tell me about your experience, you know, yes.
1: And Quinta, I think you've you've done a really nice job of outlining that and and some of the the factors in, in, in play there. For people who are listening to this and who either are, you know, um, inspired for the first time or have been considering it for a while and are are now kind of saying, right, I actually need to do something about it. I need to look at at programming. How, and and I know that that there's no panacea for this, but how would you go about maybe getting buy-in from institutions if somebody is inspired to look to put something in place?
2: So I would say the, the first thing is you have to go in with facts. You cannot go in with, I think, or I saw you can't go with this sort of anecdotal approach because people will try to debunk that because either they're not knowledgeable for first gen or just can't relate. Right. I think most universities want to help this population. So you start by understanding what your student population looks like at your university. Your, 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 your division of institutional research will be your best friend because they have all of that data. If they've collected data upon admissions or whenever about first-gen student status, then you can get cross-sections of data that, that where I've asked for data that um, identifies students by race or ethnicity, first-gen status, uh, low-income status based on those who are Pell Grant recipients in the United States, um, and several other factors, right? I even asked them to list majors and things of that nature. And then I look at GPAs, I wanna, I, and I don't just look at their current grade point average. I go back to the application process to college. I want to know what their high school GPA is. I want to know if they received any sort of credit for dual enrollment, AP courses, IB courses. I want to see what their experience is like before they got to the university. And once they get there, using that data to really triangulate that data with how they're performing at the university. If they are not performing well, then there's some, some some reasons why they're not performing well. And it's 99% of the time it's not because they are not academically capable because there's they're, they're some sort of obstacle that they're encountering. So if you can gather that sort of data, right, and go in and present it, say, hey, we, if you start to see a trend, like I saw a trend, I said, these are first gen African-American students, uh, a lot of them are low-income backgrounds, and their GPAs range from a 1.6 to a 2.1, and there's 75 of them. OK. And I'm like, this is this is inconsistent with the data on the demographics of the percentage of students at the university. So you have to go on to make those sort of, of, of analyses and really understand what is your platform for working with the students. Not every first gen student is going to require that sort of assistance. Some will come in and will be resilient, hit the ground running. They've had people in their background who have 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 introduced them to stuff. Like, I don't think I would have ever thought about college, even though my aunt went to college. I remember her being in college while I was in second grade, but that's about as much as I knew, right? So you fast forward uh, to my senior year in high school, and it was my high school librarian who took an interest in me during my junior year while I was actually getting in trouble <laughs> in the hallway. It was, it was a long story. But anyway, she... Um, started talking to me about you know what I could do and how I thought about college and this sort of stuff. And this, this is all new to me, right? And so she's the one that really guided me through to applying for and getting into college. But once I got there, like we had support programs, but they were mainly for racial minorities, right? And that for me was not too much of an issue as much as it was, how do I get to this university? That was my bigger problem there. Stay with us we'll be right back
3: cracking the college admissions code just got easier i'm rebecca gordon your go-to fictional college admissions counselor for the rich and famous tune into the admissions game satire edition and uncover my top secrets for sure fire ivy league admission ditch the old photoshop your face onto a water polo hunk trick we reveal all the latest loopholes So laugh and learn with the admissions game wherever you podcast.
0: So you may not know the answer to this one, but I'm going to throw it out there. You know, we talk about first gen students and once they get to college, maybe even the application process and then hopefully having some resources for them. And I think you bring a good point that like not every first gen student is going to require like so much help or whatnot. Mm -hmm. even going to like high school or middle school as these students are going through the different grade levels and then getting to college. So like by the time they get to college, okay, now we have to work with them at that point and hopefully catch up to where they're at. Do you feel there's a a nice transition, whether it's just first gen students or just students in general from high school to college or things that we could help to work on with that?
2: Wow, that's a loaded one. So... (laughs) (laughs) So there are some colleges out there that have transition programs, but these are not wholly nationwide, right? There are some programs that reach, that some colleges that understand because they have very high first-gen populations that this transition needs to start back in high school, even middle school for some of them now, right? And working with them, so they can recruit them to their university with the support. There is a program, um, I think it's a program in Northern Virginia that does that, um, that works with students and tries to get them at least into the community college system and then have an articulation agreement mm-hmm. with the four-year institution. But I, I think that because the problem is so great on college campuses, mm-hmm. that the lift would be incredibly heavy to reach out. Even though I think it would be very helpful it will take the buyer of that university to say, this is worth my investment. This is the return on investment is great here. Here's a population of students that we can serve. How can we reach out and start working with school counselors and college counselors in in, in the schools and the community to make sure these students have the resources, even in high school, that they need to make that transition? Because that transition can be rough, right? We have a lot of first-gen students who are very popular in their high schools. They've done well in high school. And then suddenly, but they've done well in a way that I, the stories I hear is that I didn't have to study in high school, courses is typical for all students. But I didn't have to do this. and get to college, and there are other issues that they deal with. Now, take move-in day at my last university, where this one student I saw him sitting on the sidewalk, and I was like, and he just had his head between his, his his arms, like like you know, I thought it was crime, he was crying, but he's just like. I went to go talk to him. He goes, I can't stay here. I was like, what do you mean you can't stay here? It's the first day you move in, you know? Yeah. And I saw his parents sitting in the car. They looked sort of helpless, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, or at least I thought it was their experience. It was my assumption, right? Mm-hmm. And he looked at me and he said, both my parents had to work today. They dropped me off this morning and I moved them to my room. There were things such as he had the wrong size sheets. He didn't know a lot of things he needed to have, though the university had sent information about that. He still didn't know a lot of things that he needed to have. And he was experiencing, he was a low income student as well. So he was experiencing these families moving their kids into the dorm and going in and setting up their rooms and all the stuff that they had. And he goes, I'm doomed from the beginning. I don't have one third of what these people have. I don't know one third about what I'm doing here he is I don't know. I don't, I don't want to be here. And so that was the student I immediately attached to. We got talked about my experience. I personally took them around, started introducing them to administrator, anyone I could get him to know. And then I found first-year students that I worked with. I said, I want you to work with the student because he needs to know that he belongs here. So it's even that mentality that when you get there, it's that the imposter syndrome, right? Do I belong here? And that could be a setback from the beginning because then you walk into a lecture hall right? And it's different than a high school classroom. Um, Suddenly you, like most college students, you have all of this time that you have to organize and understand and what to do and how to study. And if your financial aid doesn't come through, who do you talk to? Or do you feel like you even have the cultural or social clout to go in and talk to them? You know, So many things tied up into that, that students could learn. At the high school level, if we had someone there to work with them to help transition them through. So, yeah, I think that's very important, but I think it's also very complicated. It's something I've looked into in terms of writing grants as well. Mm-hmm. But there's so few opportunities out there for that type of programming. And I, I find that to be not a good thing and almost sad. That sense of belonging, I think, is, is so important. And again, th- this
1: is one you, you may or may not have the answer to, but I'm, I'm curious to hear your take on it. Do you think, I suppose, peer-to-peer support and, and involving students uh, would is an important factor in um, assisting first-gen students, Quinton?
2: I, I absolutely 100% believe that peer-to-peer support and advising is critical in working with first-year first generation students. And for this reason, I as a faculty member can work with and believe in the first gen student, but still, even if I share with them that I was a first gen student and share my story, <clears throat> that is not that student's reality, right? They see me, okay, you, you've accomplished this and how am I going to accomplish this? So actually working side by side with someone who was going through the process, who has recently experienced their struggle, and how they got through it—that was one of probably the, one of the more powerful things in the programming that I did at Longwood. That happened is that with Longwood University is that we we matched our students up with someone else who was first gen, who was doing well, who had had those struggles, and those are often some of the most powerful conversations. We also did empowerment groups where they were able to talk with each other and give each other suggestions and guidance on, you know, one of the one on, on things. One of, one of the conversations I remember is. I can't seem to get anyone in the financial office who was willing to listen, and sit down, and talk to me about the situation. They keep sending me to a website, and one student goes, "Hey, here's a person that really talked to me." And get, hey, guess what? You got time tomorrow? We'll go over to tomorrow. I'll, I'll walk with you over there. So it's even things like that, you know, that's very helpful. So yeah, peer-to-peer connections are very important for, for, for these students. They need to understand that there are other students on campus who have their same. Uh, characteristics, and that they have succeeded, and that they will succeed. So I, I don't want to look at this from a deficit perspective and say that all first-gen students are not going to succeed, but they do have a particular set of problems when they arrive to campus if they've not had any sort of support and training before they get there. And so it's an that they're going to experience some sort of difficulty navigating that environment, and it may not always be academic. You know, for this student, it was financial. It was, if I don't get the aid they say I need, I, I was going to get, then I've got to go home. You know? Makes me think of
0: a time when, when I first was going to Cal State San Bernardino and financial aid had, this is still when they mailed things and not, it wasn't all through email, but they had eat or they mailed me my financial aid package. And then two weeks later they sent another one and I didn't know the difference. I just saw there was dollar signs on there. And I was like, oh, cool. It's, you know, they just maybe just sent me a new one for whatever reason. And I remember my dad was looking at it and he was like, they took away one of your grants and they put an, a, a loan in there. And I was like, oh, well, what's that? And He's like, well, probably something you got to pay back. He's like, call them. And so I called them and, you know, then, you know, they gave me a reason why they did what they did. And so I was like, okay. I told my dad, he's like, no, 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 call them back. <laughs> he's like, no, no, he's like, you need to get that that grant back. He's like, we're not gonna be able to pay this this loan. He's like, unless you're going to, and I'm like, yeah. oh, I, I guess I don't know. So ended up figuring it out, and then they they gave me the the grant back. But had I not had my dad look at it, I just would have just probably had a loan that I didn't yeah. need.
2: And think about the students who don't have their parents at their access mm-hmm. when that happens. Those who are hundreds of miles away from home and, and some of them that, that can't travel back during breaks because the finances or for whatever reason may be working or whatever. Um, they would probably have said, OK, I'll just take this loan, not, re- not realizing the implication six months out of the graduation. You have to pay that back Let's start paying that back. And how's that going to impact you and your salary and what you know, that sort of stuff? So. Yeah, there are all sorts of, they're just so, it's such a complicated topic. Mm-hmm. And when I think about programming around first-gen students, my initial thought is that advisors should be first in front and in, in line with that. Because guess what? Students don't have to see other entities at that university to graduate. They do have to see an academic advisor. Right. You know, we work with course scheduling. We work with add drop. We work with uh, special academic actions, degree audits. Um, Yeah, we do all that stuff. So what happens if a student never sees an advisor and advisor doesn't understand their issues? I have plenty of stories I could tell you about um, what's happened with first-gen students because of assumptions of a poor advisor. And I'll give an example of one of my former graduate students who is now in a position where... She's in an academic advising position coordinating for one of the medical medical units at um, Virginia Commonwealth University. Her story is, was fascinating to me because I said, you know, I can tell my story all day long and it sounds really typical, right? Black, male, first gen, low income student. That's, you know, that can be a typical story. Her story, white female, um, trying to get into nursing school. She had a white female nursing advisor and they had to pass this test in their sophomore year to actually get into the nursing program. Well, she did not pass the test twice. And so the advisor brought her in and said, so why are you not passing the test? She goes, she goes well, I have to work 35 hours a week. She was a first-gen student. She was low income. She had to work 35 hours a week to even be at the university. Her advisor looked at her and said, you have to call your parents and tell them that you have to spend that time studying, that you cannot work that much. Mm-hmm. And so here's an assumption that here's a white female advisor who probably was not first gen. Here's a white female first gen student saying, telling her narrative, I have to work. Did she know she first gen? Probably not. But she did know that neither of her parents graduated from college. Well, she left the university, went to another university, and she said that she when she got to university, that university had a very strong first generation program. She had an identity. She got the help she needed. And eventually she came back to graduate school at our university in a different field. But that was her drive. That's what she's doing now. She was working with the program that's a distance learning program. The first two years, then students came to campus for their last two years. And she. um I had to guide her through a lot of things and mentor her through this and work with faculty who had no idea about how to work with these students. First, they were undergrads going straight into a PhD program. So there was no masters in between, right? There's a, that's a whole issue there. But then a lot of them were first-gen students. So things such as quitting their jobs to do clinicals, well, that was a financial piece. And these are things that the faculty just didn't think about. They thought everyone else had their same experience. And thank goodness, as the advising coordinator, or I forget what her position is in that school, she was able to address this from a first generation perspective. And now they're starting to see great success. These students aren't failing classes as much. Uh, professors are starting to make exceptions and, and and assist students. So it's just about advocating for the community in a way that people can understand and have some empathy for. Um, and I say empathy and not sympathy, because the only way feeling feel sorry for them. To understand where they are and why they may need a little bit of additional push.
1: And Quentin, I'm just wondering are first gen students as a cohort a group who've been particularly impacted by COVID and and all of the changes that has brought to our higher ed institutions?
2: So it's interesting you ask that because we are actually um, analyzing some data from a study that we did when we shut down in March. Myself and Dr. Brown therefore, were really concerned about the students that we were working with because they were, you know, they had a weekly support group. They had weekly study sessions. They had all the support surrounding them and they were thriving. And suddenly they're all going home. And so in the conversations we had with them about covid there were, and, and I, will, I will say that this is not just specific to first gen students, but it did impact these students who were first gen, low income, and racial ethnic minority. So there's a trifecta there again that we're talking about. And so the stories that were that we heard and the data that we're hearing that that we're analyzing now, you know, points to the fact that when they got home, the biggest obstacle for them was helping their family understand that they were still in college, <laughs> right? They're not home on the vacation. I'm in college. I have to dedicate this much time to studying. I need a quiet place to be. I need so there were students who were going outside to study in their car. There were students who I mean it was just it was really interesting. Who said my study time is between, between 12 PM and 4 AM or 12 AM and 4 AM because that's when it's quiet in my house and I sleep during the day. But when, when I don't have classes. So there are all these stories out there about navigating financial aid when no one is there to help you at your house, um, accessing virtual on, online resources such as the student, student learning services, tutoring, that sort of stuff. So COVID has really impacted this population quite a bit. And luckily for this group, we, we were able to continue these virtual support groups and they talked about the fact that had they not had those groups, they probably would have given up. They needed a connection back to the university. They need to be on the ground. But their obstacle, help, helping their family understand, you know, and also dealing with this sort of um, and, and for these students, most of them are African-American, Hispanic, the cultural aspect of it. Right. Family's family. <laughs> Right, families, community. When mom says I need the grass cut, you don't say, "Well, no, mom, I need to study for biology." You get up and you go cut the grass because you're home. You expect to chip in, etc. So they had those sort of things to navigate through and struggle with. Luckily, like I said, they had the group to come back to and talk with virtually and talk about how they navigated that. And I mean, some of the things they had to do were extreme, but they survived. They did well. Um, but I wonder what would have happened had they not had that support as an ongoing support. I wonder about students who are on campuses that have first-gen programming, but it's not really first-gen programming, right? It's if you happen to drop in, you know, you have other universities done this sort of outreach to these students to continue these supports. I'm sure they have, but have students access them? What encouragement did they have to do that? What efficacy do they have to do that? So, Ours was very intentional and very predictive. When they said we were going virtual, the first thing we said was, we have got to figure out something for these students and now. And and we did. And so that data, uh, we hope to publish this soon in one of the Nakata journals. I mean, it's some pretty riveting data. I mean, it's it's interesting. And I think it can be applied to advising through any sort of crisis that, is, that, that impacts us nationally like COVID has.
0: And when you were mentioning like students that, you know, they have to, still help out and do the chores at home if they have siblings i've had students where they're the older sibling then it's almost they have to put everyone else first and they them themselves are the last because they have to help with the family help with the chores sometimes i've had some students that have said that their parent got laid off so then they have to now take on the job but then if they have siblings, they also have to help their siblings with their homework, you know, because they're also, you know, virtual with classes. And then it's like, well, when are you actually dedicating time to you and to your classes?
2: Yeah, that, that's one of the more powerful narratives that we had from one of our students. Because mm-hmm. I asked one of those that was in the interview, and I said, so tell me about, you know, how are you navigate this? Well, he his father was laid off. His mother was pushed back to quarter time. He had two younger siblings at home. So during the day, both parents were out looking for jobs. You know, this is working class. So they were out work looking for jobs during the day, which meant he was home during the day. And he had to make sure his two siblings were doing their work and that sort of stuff. He's the one that went to, you know, he he had to find time to study because he went to work at midnight he worked at eight a.m. He got off. He says when I got off work, I had to come home, fix breakfast for my for my for my siblings, and make sure their stuff was done. He goes, then I maybe around noon got a chance to do my work, but then I had that was about to four o'clock, and then because my parents had been out all day, I felt obligated, no sort of obligated, mm-hmm. to cook dinner to do so. Once again, it's that whole piece of there's a lot going on for these students.
1: Absolutely, um, uh, but. I, I suppose the the passion you have for supporting students and and student success shines through there and the the last time we we spoke to you um you had, had i think you've been in your new role for just a, a couple of months um a little bit further along now um how has the the past couple of months been for you? How are things uh, at, at george mason um you're you're a man who always has things going on. Yeah.
2: So the the, the past couple of months have been really good. Um, I, I really enjoy the environment at George Mason. Uh, the relationships I've established virtually, which is really interesting, are stronger than relationships that I had when I was face-to-face at my other university. So that tells you the type of people I work with. They're fantastic. And, uh, you, know, they're, they're, you know, the challenges we, we, we've had, um, or I've had, well, I don't say challenges. They're not really challenges. The work I've had to do is really kind of bring forward the narrative for academic advising. And so I did a really, really incredibly deep dive. I probably interviewed over 100 advisors, administrators, et cetera, did a lot of statistical analysis, collecting data. And I just submitted that report to my supervisor just before the break. Um, and her comment back was really interesting. She gave me a couple suggestions. She goes, this is a very, very strong ethnography of advice at this university that people need to know. And so that has been good because now I think that sort of sets me up to have these conversations with people I need to have about advising ratios and the impact on students, particularly special populations. Um, We're beginning now to be able to start to focus on programming for special populations on that campus, uh, making sure that the advising program, which is good, making sure but it's consistent across all academic units while still allowing them their autonomy for structure. And that has been the exciting and the challenging part, but the great thing is everyone's optimistic and willing to pitch in and and, and do this thing, right? Um, I don't think I've met a more enthusiastic group of academic advisors in my entire career. They're just absolutely a joy to work with. So a lot has been happening on that front Um, in terms of programming, also getting them very involved with NACADA. Um, So I received support from my immediate um, supervisor to pay for a significant number of NACADA memberships. Um, We do have some advisors who are involved, but my my goal is to get a lot of them involved because they have done some incredible things over the years and, and currently. And I will say with limited resources, that they could share with other advisors who may be in the same boat and feel like there's no hope. The, I, I tell you what, if I could write another book called Miracle Workers, that would be our advisors right now. I mean, they, their ratios are really high and that's being worked on. But what they've done to serve students is anything short of miraculous. So I've had a great time. Um, one of the things we're, we're strengthening right now is trying to figure out what this collaboration between the new success coaching program and the academic advising program looks like, and where's the focus for student services to make sure we're not duplicating services. Because what i found as I did a dive into advising is that in each academic unit, those schools are, most of the schools are strong within the university. They have strong student services that, No one in the university knew about. So those services are being duplicated and learning services are over here, over there. So it's now trying to figure out, we have all these things. Let's figure out where services are available, what part advisors have in that, and then how do we not duplicate service? Because you know when students start getting too many emails, what do they do? I'm not answering any more emails. I'm not looking at that. Or they get frustrated in the shuffle, right? They get shuffled from one place to the next place. So it's been... um, Good work. It's been good work. I, I love this type of work. I love figuring out, I'm figuring out the puzzle and, and collaborating, and it's just been good. So one I, I, of our focus, I will focus, I will be working with first gen students. So that's actually one of the training modules that I have recommended for our training team. We meet next Tuesday for a retreat, so we'll start to flesh out what that looks like. Stay with us. We'll be right back. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast?
0: And you've mentioned Nakata, and you're the the chair of the first generation college student advising community. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about some of the goals that you're hoping to get done with with your advising community in 2021? Yes.
2: Yeah. So we just finished um, selecting the steering committee. With COVID, everything has kind of moved slowly. <laughs> um, we have our first meeting uh, later this month, and so we we have um, our communication um, team lead. We have our best practices. Uh, community building, and then research and scholarship. So the two areas that we are really focused on right now are best practices and research and scholarship. And I feel like those two go hand in hand because best practices are often derived from research that is conducted. It's also indicative of very strong practices that are currently out there. So two of our goals is to increase professional development opportunities for everyone in NACADA, about working with first-gen students is through our best practices um, group. The second piece is to start um, bolstering the body of literature surrounding specifically advising first-generation students because we feel like we need that literature specifically. So those are our two biggest goals, and that's what we'll focus on for the next year and a half. Um, And like I said, it's not just for the first-gen committee, but, I you know, my goal is as the the chair and the vice chair's role is to really encourage and give some efficacy to our members to start doing research and help them understand that research does not always mean you have to have an experiment going on, right? It could be action research. It could be observation. It could be a lot of different things. We just need to get the body of knowledge out there. And so we are assisting them through writing conference proposal presentations uh, we're going to start writing groups specifically about first-gen students and how do we bring that to the forefront. And also advocating with the journals, uh, the Nakata Journal and the Nakata Review, um, to eventually do a special edition um, focused on advising first-gen students. That's a little bit out because we still have to encourage that sort of research. So that, that, that's the big thing right now.
1: That, uh, that's all very exciting, and uh, I'm not surprised that uh, again you were a uh, driving force behind, um, you know, lots of of positive developments uh, within the advising sphere. One of the other, um, mm-hmm. I suppose, uh, exciting developments that was in the works when we last spoke to you was uh, that homemade wine. Uh, where uh, where are we in the in the process on that, Quinton?
2: Oh, the homemade wine! Yeah, you know, that was such. An adventure in the end, right? So, I, 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 it's my first time making wine. And in my excitement, I thought I had everything all lined up and ready to go. And so, when I started the process, the fermentation process, I ended up putting one of the packets in at the wrong time. And I was like, oh crap. So, I had to do a lot of research and I go, yeah, that that's fine. You'll be okay. Just don't ferment it, you know, that long before you start the next process. So, it turned out okay. And I actually bottled. Uh, 32 bottles, and they have been in my basement now for almost three months. February 1st is the pop date, so that's in a couple of weeks. Um, I did taste some before I um, stored it, and it was it was good, this Pinot Noir. And so th- th- to be continued, I think you know, February 1st is going to be a cork popping party, um, and I haven't decided what I'm going to name this particular wine yet, but it's 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 been fun. And it's a good stress relief also. That was kind of fun just to kind of do it and do some self-care. And so to be continued.
0: <laughs> yeah. And another reason to have that party is that's when this episode is getting posted. So uh-huh. listening right now, it's Monday, February <laughs> 1st. And. Let's all have a cheers to Quentin and this podcast episode. Oh, wow.
2: How, how, how great. <laughs>
0: but Quentin, we have reached the end of this interview. I'm really happy that we got this to work out and we got to talk about this topic. And, you know, I think there's going to be a lot more discussions coming up regarding first gen students. But thanks for being on the podcast. And if any listeners have any questions for you, they want to reach out, you know, and and talk to you more about this topic or anything that we discussed on even the October's podcast episode, how can they reach out to you?
2: They can reach me at my work email address. That is Alexand, Q-A-L-E-X-A-N-D at gmu.edu. All right. Awesome. There you go. Yep. Thank you, Quentin. All right. Thank you.
1: I always feel I learned from conversations with Quentin and that interview was no different. Wonderful insights and practical advice.
0: Yep. And thank you again, Quintin, for coming back on the podcast for part two. Next up is Dr. Leah Frierson from the Robertson Scholars Leadership Program. In this interview, we get to also discuss first gen college students, but also get to talk with Leah about her time as a student athlete, a coach, reflecting on her time as a doctoral student and her administrator roles in academic advising. So, let's take a listen. Dr. Leah Frierson is a native of Belleville, Illinois, and has spent 10 years in the state of North Carolina. She has worked for over 17 years in higher education and has extensive experience working with students in academic advising and student support. Prior to working with the Robertson Scholars Program, she served as the Director of Academic Advising at the University of Richmond. She also worked at Crosstown Rival, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill as an Assistant Dean of Advising, as well as the Assistant Director of the McNair Scholars Program, a PhD preparation program for undergraduate students. Prior to her career in academic advising, she coached college women's basketball for almost 10 years. Leah received her undergraduate degree from Austin P State University, her master's from the University of North Carolina, Pembroke, and her EDD from the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. She loves working with students and in her free time, she enjoys reading, working out, Netflix, volunteering in the community and being a foodie. Leo, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Glad to be here. We're delighted to have the opportunity to, to speak to you, Leanne. What shines through in, in your bio is, I suppose, your passion for education and your passion for students. And maybe as a way for listeners to, to get to know you a, a little better, could you talk us through you know, how you came to, to work in, in higher ed and to be in the position that you're in now? That's the million-dollar question. Um, I was like,
3: that's the one question I was ready for. I was like, how did I come? Um, so I think that I don't know if anyone ever intentionally gets into higher ed. I feel like people either stumble their way in, like, this is, I didn't know you could do this as a career, or to have a really impactful faculty member or academic advisor who talks with them, and they want to have that same impact. Um, so for me, I actually started my higher ed career coaching and it wasn't intentional. I had a job after graduation and all of that, but I just specifically remember my, um, college coach calling me and saying, Hey, you ever thought about coaching? And I, I turned my nose up at him. Cause I thought, no, like, why would I do what you're doing? And he said, I had a friend who was looking for someone and he thought I'd be good at it. And I dropped everything and moved to North Carolina to take a job making a lot less money. We'll just say that it wasn't very much living in a bubblegum pink dorm room to coach basketball, women's basketball. Um, And I did that for like nine years and transitions happened. And into academic advising and support, and the rest is history.
0: You were, you've been a student athlete, and you are also the coach for the women's basketball team. And I know, like, you're a four time honoree of the athletic directors honor roll, author of Ash's Sports Scholar Athlete Award, <laughs> helped capture the second straight Ohio Valley Conference title. You've done a lot, and mm,
3: homework. I see.
1: <laughs>
0: I, I didn't even remember all those things. I, I, I try. I try sometimes. <laughs> like you have experience like as a student athlete as a coach and I think sometimes like maybe as faculty or as advisors we kind of don't understand a lot of what student athletes actually have to juggle can you can you talk more from like your experience and then also as a coach coaching these students like what 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 student athletes all their responsibilities are
3: yeah I think um I think that there is this misconception sometimes around being a student athlete that everything is handed to you, um, which is not the case. Um, I just I remember I'll 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 talk to this from two different angles, one as a player, a former player, and then one from a coaching perspective. And it's funny because when you start (laughs) as a player, you tend to hate your coaches at certain points in time. And then you promise yourself if you get into coaching, you'll never be that. And then you turn into that. And it's a really weird dynamic. Right. And you just it's a power trip. But I will say that student athletes really walk a very disciplined life. And it's a very structured life. Um, It does not always appear like that. But we are held to a very high standard, Um, you know, kind of the common message is you are always wearing your jersey all the time, in class, in the community. If you go to a party on campus, that's fine. That's We do that, but you still represent this team in this university. Um, I think a lot of times we are held to stricter diets and um, waking up at 4 a.m. And, you know, students work, other students work and things like that, but, and not to discredit that at all, but also student-athletes, Travel all the time on the weekend, so you go and play a basketball game. Get in at three o'clock in the morning. You're expected to be in class at eight, nine o'clock. Class all day, sports, weights, film, individual workouts. It's on repeat like all academic year, Um, and you really miss a lot of those things like holidays and birthdays and important moments. I didn't. I don't even think until I got out of coaching I knew what. Like, I was like, what's a holiday? Like, this is a real thing where you get to hang out with your family and just relax and not have to rush back. You know, and I think it can be a lot to juggle academically because oftentimes you're trying to prove to your professors that, like, I'm here to do the work. And some are not as uh, student athlete friendly and others are. You know, it's kind of hit or miss. But um, I do think that. You know, student athletes have a higher level of expectation on them at all times for how they behave, how they perform in the classroom, what they do on the court. And in this day and age, particularly in the culture and climate we're living in today, I can't even imagine being a student athlete right now. Like It has to be so difficult with everything going on in the world and the things in their face.
1: Well. Um, I suppose in terms of, the, it, you know, student athletes juggle a lot. But you, you know, while coaching, you were also juggling because you've continued to to study throughout your um, your working career. And uh, you went, you got, you. I think you got two masters while while working, and you did doctoral studies uh, as well. Can you talk to us, I suppose, a little bit about? working and studying at at the same time, and also a little bit maybe about your doctoral studies?
3: Mm -hmm. Yeah, working and studying at the same time. I think the master's level was not as difficult, but when I got to my doctoral degree, I didn't think I was going to make it, to be quite frank. Um, I There was a pretty big gap of time in between my master's and my doctorate degree. It was about eight years. So I had been out of the swing of things for quite some time. And to go back in the level of reading and I was working and I had some times where I was picking up extra work. It was very challenging. I will say that, you know, the master's degree was interesting just because, you know, I got one of my masters um, was in physical education with the sport admin. So at that time, you know, that was what I was doing. So it was very easy. But when I transitioned, I remember in my doctoral degree and I'm outing myself, but I I think I cried after every class um, because I myself am a first generation student. And so I didn't necessarily have anybody who I was looking at like oh my gosh you did this thing and it was all very new to me and I had been out so long right when you have been out of studying and reading at such a high level and it's such high volumes right um it's very very hard and you're you know you work all day and then you go to class I went to class and would go to probably four hours right after work and then go home shower eat go to the library for three four more hours so 11 30 at night So, I think one of the commitments that I made to myself during my degree was that I would always take really, really good care of myself. And I would say for probably 85 to 90% of that time, I did really, really good. I promised myself I wouldn't stay up 24 hours. So, if that meant spending all day on the weekends in the library so that I can get a good night's sleep during the week, that's what I did. And I made that commitment. And I think it made a huge difference. It made a really huge difference. I think also, and our, the program that I was in, I had really supportive faculty members. And so even though I cried after every class because I didn't think I could do it, um, I will say at um, at the University of North Carolina Wilmington, where I got my doctoral degree, um, they were the ones who were like talking me off the ledge all the time. Very, very supportive. And I don't think I would have made it through that program if I hadn't had the support of faculty and my dissertation committee um, the way they were.
0: That's amazing. And so you've had you know, those mentors and that support system in a way that's kind of helped out. But like you talking about crying after like every class, it kind of reminds me of a a story that someone Mm -hmm. once said where I don't necessarily know the whole quote, but it was essentially that like you can take 15 minutes a day to cry to you know do whatever it is but like once you're done with that 15 minutes you get to it and and you get on it and it seems like mm-hmm. you know and it's all paid off you in the sense that you've done all this and you've accomplished so much which is something too that you know i want to talk about is like and i asked quentin alexander who we've interviewed for this podcast episode i asked him this question so i'm going to ask you the same question too
2: <laughs> and
0: that's you know at at many institutions we celebrate first gen you know there's Um, November as the celebration week or day or month for first gen and there might be t-shirts and you know ice cream or whatever it is if we're on campus that that we're celebrating but what do we do with that like as a university or as advisors helping first gen because we know to celebrate but how how are we supporting first gen students?
3: Yes so I think um so so to your point of the first gen week that a lot of institutions celebrate I think I think that's wonderful, right? Like you're here, you made it. But I also think we have to be careful about what that message is to our students because first gen doesn't mean that you're not smart. It doesn't mean that you're not talented or it doesn't mean that you're not supposed to be here. So we're celebrating you getting here, which is great, but there could be some undertones of, I can't believe you made it. And so to me, I think we have to also be very mindful of saying you were resourceful enough to figure out where you fit. We knew you would be here, but you had to figure out the best place that was going to support you as a first-gen student, as opposed to there being this kind of undertone message of sometimes like, oh, you made it. Like, we didn't think that you were when you were as bright, if not brighter than some of your peers, right? And then what was the second? Sorry, I just had to get that off my chest because I think very deeply about these things
0: Yeah, absolutely. So the other part is like, you know, as much as we celebrate first gen, what do we do with that? Like if we're an advisor working with first gen students, we know, okay, we're not going to try to assume certain things about them. But if we're all about like the hurrah, you know, hooray, you're here. What happens after that? What what are we what is something that we as advisory institutions should also be doing?
3: Yeah, that's a that's a good question. I was just having this conversation the other day about the importance of us as advisors. You know, we tend to have a lot on our plate anyway, right? Advising is kind of the be all end all. Like if I don't know where else to go, my advisor's going to know all of the things. And I think one of the ways that we can kind of continue to celebrate our first gen students or Um, even just support them at a much higher level. It's just making sure that once we are aware of who they are, making them aware of opportunities that fit them. You know, I was just having a conversation. I was talking to Quentin, as a matter of fact, and I was explaining to him that we should partner with the high-achieving student advising community because so many of our students' may not realize these high-level merit, school, national merit scholarships that they are eligible for just because they didn't know or whatever other resources are available and take a more proactive role in helping those students see, like, these are the things, like, here are some high-level scholarships or research or internships or career opportunities or alums you should be connecting with um, if we know that information. And certainly, you know, Depending on where you work, you might not have the capacity for that, right? But I think once they're identified or even knowing who your liaison is on your campus and talking with them to see what do your students need? It's as simple as a conversation. What do they need? What do they want out of their experience here? And then just being intentional. If it's something as simple as passing on information to the person that's the liaison for that particular group on campus.
1: And Leah, I know that you are, you're very involved with, with Nakata, and um, you, you mentioned Quentin there and I know you're involved in um, some of the advising communities. Can you talk to us, I suppose, a, a little bit about how, you know, you first um, got in, involved with, uh, with Nakata, and I, I think you're now part of the Emerging Leaders Programme. Mm-hmm. Yes. Can you talk to us maybe a little bit about your Nakada journey as such?
3: Yeah, I um, I think when I got out of coaching, I wasn't sure where I fit. Like if coaching is such a kind of a niche area, if you will, like we have our one organization we have our pathway to follow. We see the same people all the time on the recruiting trail. Like that was the thing. Whereas with advising or any other unit in higher ed right you only see them at the annual conference and you how do you you know find the community and the professional networks outside of your own campus and so advising or NACADA was that avenue for me to figure out like who are my people and, you know, what are they doing or how are they staying afloat or how are they building connections? And so, I mean, it really just started with me joining the organization and, and going to like the state or regional conferences that we held. And I think the more, every time I did that, I always saw that my colleagues were doing such good work. I will say that I've been to a lot of different conferences and I feel like Nakata invite Nakata people, we'll call them Nakata family, are probably the most giving and supportive and friendly group of any organization I've ever been a part of. Um, and so in that way, I started uh, reading proposals and just, you know, just trying to be available and, and do things in the org. But I think where it kind of turned the corner for me is in my experience at Richmond. And I Was dealing a lot with faculty advising. That was my first time. And it was quite an experience. And the people were just, I mean, I I tell people this they like saved my life because I was like a fish out of water. And they were just so good. And people were so, just so helpful um, in providing resources and connecting me with other people. Um, And I think, how can you not be engaged in a community like that, right? That I just feel like. I would be a selfish person if I didn't give back in some way or engage in some way for all of the things that Nakata and the community of Nakata has has provided me with in my professional career.
0: And you mentioned Richmond, and so at University of Richmond, you were the your role was the director of academic advising. Can you discuss more about like what that entails being the director of academic advising and like how the advising structure was or model was at Richmond?
3: Sure. So um, Richmond's a small private, right, right in the heart of Richmond. Um, And they have um, a faculty driven model. And so um, faculty advise pretty much the whole time. And so my particular office was charged with structuring advisor training, providing support, um, helping to coordinate orientation. Summer advising was a huge responsibility for our office. Um, so a lot of what I did was connecting with faculty on training and to being available to support them um, at high peak times that that October and that probably April timeframe for advising. I also, again, just the summer advising piece, um, I worked a lot with our first year experience as well. So just working with them on what is it, what is the support that our first year students as well as our transfer students took on um, making sure, making all of the advisor assignments, keeping up to date with all of our resources. Um, So that was, you know, it's a lot of kind of administrative logistical piece our office did uh, with the heavy lean towards just the structure of it um, to make it easy for our faculty advisors
1: and you you moved across then to a new job um in the the midst of covid and you're now with the the robertson scholars leadership program can you maybe tell us a little bit about the the program and and a little bit about your your role and and what it was like starting um i suppose in in august of
3: 2020 (laughs) Mm. There's lots of paranoia with moving in the middle of a, a, a pandemic and people breathing on all of your furniture where you're moving and stuff. But um, the, the move itself wasn't bad. It was right up the street. I wasn't moving to a place that I didn't know. So I think that for me made it a little bit easier because I have some of my closest friends here. And so it was a very familiar f- place. So in that way, it was easy. Um, certainly, I don't know if uh, sometimes onboarding virtually. Uh, certainly is a challenge because you're not necessarily in a position to build that rapport with your colleagues in a way that would normally happen, right? You have to be a little bit more intentional about that. But the program that I work for is a merit leadership program at Duke University called the Robertson Scholars Leadership Program. Um, It's a great program. I'm going to just toot the horn. It's a great program. So I think the interesting part of our program is that it is our program serves scholars at both UNC and Duke, and it's a leadership development program. And so it's a highly selective program. Our students are really smart, but they also are very involved in like social justice, environmental studies and sustainability, entrepreneurship. Um, they just have a real drive for change in our world in some capacity. Um, but we serve students on both campuses. We have a lot of leadership programming for them. Um, It's a fully funded program, so the students get school paid for for four years. Um, I think the unique part about our program is that our students are dual citizens of both universities. And so um, in their sophomore year, they get to go live and do life and take class at the sister campus, hence where I come in. (laughs) So my role currently is the assistant director for academic and scholar programs. And so I manage, coordinate and support all things academic, our campus switch process, um, all the relationships academically with our campus partners, um, making sure that our students are funded properly, um, all of that, talking career, academic connections, um, Helping them really process through um, just kind of what it means to be a scholar with our program in leadership and connecting all the dots. And then, like I said, just doing a lot of the programmatic pieces of leadership development.
0: I love that many of these roles as you know, director or of these programs, it's all you have such a connection with the students and kind of working mm-hmm. with them through their time. And I find this one fascinating that there's that dual institution where they can take those classes and at both campuses. And I find that very amazing Mm -hmm. to do. And and congrats with everything that you're doing with that. Mm -hmm. Now, one of your previous roles was as assistant director for the McNair Scholars Program. So another program, Mm -hmm. in this case, a preparation program. What's all involved within McNair's program? Because I know many schools or people have heard about McNair's, but can you talk about what McNair's program is and how it prepares students?
3: Yeah, it's a, um, it's a PhD preparation, preparation program for, it's a trio. Let me say that it's a trio program. So it's a federally funded trio program. uh, But we prepare first gen and low income students. And then there's a percentage that needs to be in STEM. And then if you're from an underrepresented uh, racial or ethnic minority background. Um, And so, you know, every McNair program is structured. What I figured out when I was with the program, and I, That's probably another group of people that are amazing. Like the people that do McNair um, are just awesome. Like I had a wonderful, like just relationships and opportunity to network with those folks. So they are awesome. But McNair can be structured very differently at every institution. So I, I can speak to what it is at UNC or what it was when I was there. Um, but our program was basically a two year mm-hmm. program. So students apply in their sophomore year and then we built out kind of a cohort model. So in your first year, we're laying the foundation for your research, what it means to be um, a doctoral student, helping you build up those skills that you need. And then that second year is all preparation for interviews. Um, they do a lot of presenting their research and working. They get a faculty mentor. They get GRE preparation, which is huge, fully, our program, um, our UNC matched um, a lot of that funding. And so we were able to provide some GRE preparation for our scholars, which was really helpful because that can, for the particular group that we served, can be a hindrance sometimes in terms of not having the proper support and training for GRE. So we just, um, essentially, it's what it is. We provided the training and the development um, for the students to be ready to do their research or get a foot on the ground with their research. Um, they had faculty support, so they'd have a faculty mentor um, while they're in the program. And then they would go once they're done with their project. And we every year we take them to some sort of summer, like summer experience or some sort of academic year experience to present their research. They do have a summer program, where they come and they live on campus during the summer and take a couple classes. You know, it's it's a lot of different things, but we pull in a lot of our campus partners to that program um, to help support the scholars.
1: And Leigh, you've obviously worked at a number of different institutions kind of throughout your career and you've taken on different roles and responsibilities. I was just interested in from your your perspective in terms of, and and as I mentioned, you are on the Emerging Leaders Program, your approach to to leadership and and, and what leadership looks like
3: to you. Oh, that's a good question, especially since I work for a leadership program and I'm in a, I'm in a leadership program through NACADA. Um so I would say for me, leadership does not equate necessarily to a title, so to speak. But I think for me as a leader, I often look at the people around me and try to look at what is it that they're good at or try to figure out like what is the thing that drives them, that keeps them up at night, that motivates them and figure out how that thing, that desire, that drive fits in the scope of our big picture goals and try to make sure I'm a, I am a people driven person for good or bad, (laughs) but try to figure out how do I help you to become good at what you do and to know that you bring value and then center that value and piece it like as a piece of the puzzle to what we're doing. And then I think kind of second to that would be also me leading by example. I do not or try not to ask people to do things that I would not do in my leadership. I try to display a high level of of ethical behavior and just being transparent and honest. You know, I don't think I, I don't have to know everything. That's why I have people around me that are really good at some of the things that I'm not as strong at. And I think that's okay. I think we're All walking alongside each other. And I would rather you be out in front and me in the back than me trying to be in the front and get all the glory. So I think that would be, in a nutshell, how I would describe how I think about myself as a leader or leadership.
0: (laughs) That's a great answer, especially when you're saying about not asking someone to do something that you wouldn't do, you know, because it just shows that it's such a team effort with with all Mm -hmm. of this. And going back to first gen students, sometimes there's the, I guess, conversation piece that may or may not happen between like the parents and and the student where you know as much as the parent wants to be supportive of their child in college they may not understand everything that is involved with that and sometimes maybe the student may not know how to have that conversation do you have any tips for either where, whether it's how parents or guardians can do or should know about their child being in college or how the student can have those conversations with their parent or guardian?
3: Yeah, no, that's a good question. I um, I would say a t- some tips for a parent would be to just create space for them to be. I mean, I think sometimes when you're in a new environment and there could be there could be a level of intimidation in that environment because you know, you're not you're seeing that everybody around you may know these things and how to navigate this culture of college, right? And you're like, well, I didn't know that. No one told me that this was a this was something that I could have access to or do, it could easily become a situation of imposter syndrome, or they could become intimidated. So I think as a parent, just creating that space for them to just be and breathe. They may not know how they're feeling at the moment. They just know there's some tension there and they got to try to figure out and process mm-hmm. through through that and just making yourself available. I think sometimes parents who maybe who have not went to college, I think sometimes can feel like they don't have enough or the right things to bring to college. But college is all about life experience and gaining the wisdom. And who better to tell us about life experience and wisdom than our parents right it's a different it's a different setting but the principles are always the same right like how you view yourself how you treat people how hard you work those are lessons mm-hmm. that um kind of span whatever environment that you're in and so i think i think parents need to give themselves more credit for their life experience and the things they've went through and be willing to share that like this is in college. But let me tell you, when I was in this situation that was very similar, this is the decision or these are the considerations that I made. Um, and then on the flip side of that for students, I think stop assuming that your parents won't know <laughs> what you're going through. Give them the benefit of the doubt that yeah, they didn't go to college. But as I stated before, they have a lot of experience and a lot of wisdom mm-hmm. that could help me frame how I think about approaching a situation. Or a circumstance, and be willing to be open because if you're not open and they want to know, and they're maybe feeling some sort of insecurity, that's going to create a tension between you and them that really doesn't even need to be there. If you guys will stop making assumptions about each other and how one doesn't do, or you know, like they don't know how I feel, or they haven't had this, or they don't want to talk to me. Right. All the fun things that happen in the dynamic of parenthood and they have a child, right? Um, so I would just tell, encourage a student to be open with their parents and say, you didn't go, you, maybe you didn't go to college, but I mean, you've worked for 25 years. Surely you've came across somebody that was not very nice. Surely you dropped the ball in on a situation and you're trying to figure out how to fix it. Tell me how you fix it. How did you approach it? And I would be very confident to say that both would have something to offer on both ends of the stick.
1: Yeah, that was really insightful. And on that, I'm I'm going to maybe um, build on that in terms of then going on to to do the, the doctoral studies as you did, and you over you talked about the challenges um, that that you experienced, but you overcame them. For people who might be listening to this and are you know either in the midst of it themselves or are considering going on to to do um, you know a, a doctoral program, any advice for for those people. Yes,
3: I would have lots of advice, but I think we only have forty five minutes, so <laughs> um, I would say stop waiting. Um, I think people are always, "I'm waiting for the right time," or "You're always going to be busy." You are always um, going to have challenges in front of you. There is never a good time to start, but the sooner you start, the sooner you get to finish. So that's one I would say. One of the things I believe I picked up on is that, yes, intellect and scholarship are important in a doctoral program, but I think more so than that, I think being resilient and having a bit of grit and grind to you is probably just as important because if you are smart and you love to read and philosophy and research, that's great. But when you get knocked off your off your horse or life happens or a parent gets sick, that's going to test if this, you know, if you are really prepared for a doctoral program. Job is hard. It's asking so much of you. What are you going to do in that moment? Are you going to quit or are you going to say, I can't do a full load, but maybe I only do one class. I lost a parent right at the end who I, I was hoping to get done so that he could be there. And I, it just tore me up, but I finished because that was the end goal. And I knew that my dad would be proud. Right. So, you know, for someone who's like, like for me, I thought, I, I don't know, am I smart enough to do this doctoral degree? I like, Oh, that's for like this type of person. It's not, it's not, <laughs> I can tell you that it's a lot of, if you can buckle down and take the hits when you get the papers back that are marked up in red up and down the 30 pages you just wrote and then fix it and go on about your life. Um, you'll be just fine. And 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 I think the other piece too is finding the right program. Um, I think I mentioned earlier, my program, I had really supportive faculty members. I, I remember one story and, and talking with a faculty member and saying, I don't feel like I speak like, the people in doctoral programs are right, like them, And I specifically remember him saying, that's your problem. That's why you're so upset, because you're comparing yourself to others when your voice is the voice that somebody else needs to hear. They need to hear it the way you say it. They, they don't need the cookie cutter version. And I think that changed my whole world, like with the way I saw myself as a scholar. And I think I've just grabbed that and ran with it. So. To that point, um, I would just tell people, like, your voice is your voice. It'll fine-tune. It'll be flushed out over time, right? It'll evolve. But your voice, your interests, your passions, those are yours, and someone needs to hear it. And what better way to do that than, than going into your doctoral program and, and making something of it?
0: No, that's a great answer. And I think a lot of it, too, goes to, you know, like you're saying, really need to kind of focus on yourself and what motivates you and what interests you and you have that voice. And it's just about getting that out there and really not to compare yourself, because when you compare yourself to others and you're just wasting time thinking about something else that really has nothing to do with what you need to do. Mm-hmm. And it's like the saying of don't compare someone else's highlight reel to your behind the scenes.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that was my biggest I was my worst, my own worst enemy during that time. Um But I think once I turn the corner and, and I, I have moments where I go back and read papers that I wrote from when I was in my program, and i'm like, Man, like you were doing the thing in your doctoral like i well when I was writing and I thought it was just horrible like <laughs> I was like, What is this? But when I go back and read it, i'm thinking, <laughs> Wow, you were like really invested in this, like you felt strongly about this particular paper or thing.' And I think that's the exciting part is when you go back and look at it, you really, I think it just touches your heart so much. Like I finished, like I had a full on breakdown that when they said congratulations, I mean, I probably couldn't breathe. Just like it was bad. I'm like, yes, Lord, I'm done. <laughs> like it was probably more of that. I'm done finally because I just it felt like I, my running joke when I talk to people about a doctoral program, and I mentioned health and well being earlier. I said the last six weeks when I was I was doing all the edits for my program I think every time my chair sent me back an edit I gained five pounds like I just <laughs> I just remember thinking please don't send me back another edit I can't my my jeans don't fit anymore because of these edits <laughs> oh man
1: um and then I I suppose clearly you're somebody who you know in well I uh Maybe maybe relish isn't the right word, but you are well able for a challenge. You're somebody who, who thinks deeply. You're you know somebody who um takes on a number of, of different um things at one time. As we move toward, to, you know, we're moving towards the end of January into the, the rest of 2021. Um, any particular um, goals uh, or, or things that you, you hope to achieve for the rest of this year?
3: Yeah, I I didn't wait till January 2021 to start my goals. I probably started back, back in October, um, to be quite frank. So, um, as you mentioned earlier, I am part of the Emerging Leaders Program through Nakata. And so one of the things I appreciate is that we have goals that we need to meet in the program. And so we get mentors who kind of help us walk through those goals. And so currently um, I am co-authoring a book chapter. I am trying to write in the midst of such a busy, crazy time at work. Also trying to do a a piece for advising today. Um, And I'm also working with the first gen committee. So just trying to I'm not taking on any, anything else <laughs> because right now, I between the reading and the writing and um, Nakata and I also hold a position through, through NASPA locally and our local uh, steering committee for the state, just trying to do those things and do them well. Um, I don't set lofty goals. I just try to stay consistent with what I'm doing. And I don't strive for perfection, but I do strive for excellence in everything that I do. And so just, you know, I think trying to maintain a level of care in such a real, it's in such a busy and a challenging season, you know, for, I have colleagues, I have friends, I have students that are just dealing with some heavy stuff at the moment. And I think for me, it's important to extend a level of care. I think it's easy to, to, to turn internal in this season. Cause I have, we all have our stuff and, and things we're dealing with and, and hard times. My perspective is that it could be worse. You know, I have a job, I have good friends and family and I'm healthy and I'm well, and I'm blessed to be all of those things. And so I think I have a responsibility to extend a level of care to the people around me as well. It's focusing in on that.
0: And in your free time, whatever that might mean nowadays, with, with how, how busy you are, <laughs> you do like to read, work out, Netflix, volunteer, but also you're a big foodie. So with that in mind, once at some point we're able to explore the world again, are there any favorite spots that you think listeners should should try?
1: Oh,
3: that's a good question. Mm. It's been so long since I've traveled. It's just been a long time <laughs> for me to think about. I'm just trying to think of places I've been ooh, that I like. I'm like, that is my place. I love it. I just like a lot of different things. I think I just have an eclectic taste in like food and things. I'm a very big um, ethnic food eater myself. So I'm not so much like burgers and fries are cool. Like I, I am... I am toying with veganism. So I tell people I am vegan adjacent at the moment. So, So, you know, I'm probably 80%, 75%, 80% vegan. And then the other like 20% or so, we're still working on that. Mm. So pandemic has been good in that way to me that I don't really eat out a lot. Mm. I cook more than I eat out. So I can't think of anything off the top of my head.
0: Well, I'll, I'll give you a place if you're ever in Southern California. Such so uh, mentioned vegan. If you're in Southern California in the L.A. area, there's a place called Cafe Gratitude. Mm. It, it's a vegan spot. I've been there twice. I've had breakfast there and lunch there, and it's amazing. When people say, "Oh, I don't want to try vegan food," it's like it's so good. You know, you can really make make really good food. Oh my god! But the one thing they do is like everything on their menu mm-hmm. is something where it's like, "What will you have?" It's like I'll have the I am helpful, or I'll have the, I am, I am honored. And so when they bring you the, the the plate, they'll say, you are honored, or you are grateful, whatever the name of the dish is. So hence the cafe gratitude name. Aww. So it just all around, it the food's great, the the oh. service, it's amazing. So that place I would recommend for you.
3: Excellent, thank you for the recommendation. I do have a friend that lives in California, so I will definitely be making her go there with me when I go visit her.
1: <laughs> Absolutely, Leah. This has been really. Fascinating and fantastic, and I think you've provided some wonderful insights. I particularly love the the line around: "I I don't strive for perfection, but I strive for excellence." I think that's a a wonderful approach to to life, really. So, um, I really want to to thank you, um, you know, uh, for taking the time to, to chat to us. I I'm look forward to meeting you at Nakata events uh, in in the future. And um, yeah, this is this has been great. So thank you.
3: No, thank you guys for having me. This has been great.
0: <laughs> and if any listeners want to get in touch with you, they have a question about something, how can they reach out to you?
3: Yeah, so you can just email me. Uh, my email address is my last name, frierson at robertson scholars.org. F is in Frank, R I E R S is in Sam O N is in Nancy at Robertson scholars.org.
0: And what's your favorite basketball team?
3: My favorite best. I have one in all of, across all basketball mm-hmm. and it's UConn women's basketball. That's it. Everything. And I, I absolutely love Gino. I think he's a great coach. I like, I love his philosophy. Always have um, outside of that. I really like players a lot. Um, that's kind of evolved mm-hmm. over time. Um, I was, I was a Dennis Rodman mm-hmm. fan when i started playing basketball and i was nicknamed the mini dennis rodman because that was what the position i played in college and i was very good at it so <laughs> uh, but right now i just sometimes i'll try to follow players when i have time but <laughs>
0: thank you again for being on the podcast
3: no thank you
1: It was interesting to hear about Leah's experiences as a first-gen student and the challenges she had to surmount, particularly in her doctoral studies. I want to highlight a couple of upcoming proposal deadlines for the Nakata International Conference, scheduled for Athens, Greece in June, the proposal deadline is Tuesday the 2nd of February. And for NACADA's annual conference, scheduled for Cincinnati, Ohio in October, the deadline is Thursday the 18th of February. You can find more information about both of those conferences on the NACADA website.
0: And this brings us to the end of episode 28. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you found these interviews informative, insightful, and worth the listen. Remember, you can subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast platforms Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, just to name a few. And you can follow us on social media, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Advising Podcast. Thank you again. And as always, keep advising.
1: Yeah, I'll flip, i flip.